Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So we're beginning a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to call it Godward Life, and our scripture passage for this morning is in Psalm 42. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you can turn to Psalm 42. If not, uh, you can grab a Bible in front of you, or it is printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen. And so just as we read together, let's get our eyes on uh, these words from the psalmist. Psalm 42. We're going to read the entire psalm. This is a song of Maskil of the sons of Korah. He sings, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go? with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So a little bit of background as to the reason for doing this this summer. We're going to be doing this all summer long. The most helpful, the most strengthening spiritual discipline that I've put into place in my personal life over the last 10 years or so, I would say, is to begin to read from the Psalms on a daily basis. We read from a psalm each Saturday in our community Bible reading program, but I've been reading through the psalms each month since the beginning of the year, three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, using a resource uh, that I'd love to make available to the church. We'll see how we can do that from Trevin Wax called Psalms in 30 Days, and it's just a laying out of you get through the entire book of the psalms in those 30 days. You know, I've heard the question posed, if you only had access to one book of the Bible, like if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have one book from the Bible, which would it be? And it's a great question, I think, because how you answer says a lot about how you understand the spiritual life. If you value practical application, then probably one of your favorite books is the book of Proverbs, and that might be the book you would choose to have with you in that experience. Or if you're into deep theology, maybe it would be Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament. I've always struggled with an answer. I, I've never really been able to land on anything, but not anymore. I don't have to even think about it. I choose the Psalms. And the reason is, well, for one, because it's all there. The whole range of human experience, practical wisdom, theology, beautiful language, but also because the Psalms are about how to do life with God, how to live a Godward life. And for me, that is the most important thing. Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is John 17, 3. 
This is eternal life, to know God, not merely to know about him, to know him, the way you know the most important person in your life, to commune with him, to have a personal daily relationship with him. And so what I want us to see as we go throughout this series in these months of the summer is that there's a basic pattern to most of the Psalms, at least the ones that we've chosen. And it goes something like this. This is, if you read, if I wanted to like capture what the Psalms say for you, it would be, it would be something like this. Life is a big mess. And this is how I feel about it. But God. I mean, life is falling apart around me. And I'm freaking out, but God. It is the rubric for a Godward life. Most of the time we think about God in light of our circumstances or our feelings, but by a Godward life I mean learning, learning the, the, the skill, the craft, learning how to think about your circumstances and your feelings, right? The things going on around you, the stuff raging in you, in light of what you know to be true of God in real time, so that your theology begins to affect your feelings and even your countenance and even to some degree, your circumstances. And so this, we picked Psalm 42 to begin the series because it is in some ways prototypical of a lot of the other Psalms because in it you see this movement that I've just described. He, notice here, there are three points to your, the outline I've given you. He is first, he first, um, well, there, there are three kind of steps that he works us through in the psalm. The first is that there's a, just a de- declaration of existential realism. He is he just as real about what life is like. He's not sentimental. He's not cynical. There's, there's some existential realism that comes out of him. Secondly, though, there's emotional honesty, not fake spirituality. He's very honest about how he feels about how things are going in his life. And then thirdly, though, there's theological reflection. Theological reflection, not pop psychology or self-help. And that really is the rubric that we'd like to help you learn in your own life about how to be real about what's going on with life, to be honest about how you feel about it, but then to resolve all that turmoil that you might be experiencing with theological reflection. And Psalm 42 is a great place for us to start. And so let's just walk through together along those lines. Okay, first, Psalm 42 and then the rest of the Psalms are real they're realistic about life they they avoid sentimentalism which is an enemy of the spiritual life and that's a problem because christianity particularly in american evangelicalism is overrun with sentimentalism and i like flannery o'connor's definition best she said that sentimentalism is arriving at the happily ever after ahead of time have you ever done this have you ever been re-watching a movie uh, that you really love, and you probably love it because of the way it ends, the happy, the happy ending at the end, but you know, in every movie, you got to kind of go through some really awkward moments or some embarrassing things or some really sad things. Have you ever done this? You're re-watching a movie you've already seen, and you know how it ends, and so you just fast-forward through all the bad stuff to get to the good stuff at the end? Okay, good. Maybe it's just me. I'm weird. There's enough sad things in my life, I don't need that part. I need the happy stuff, right? I mean, I just, like, I find myself, like, oh, I've seen this already, I don't wanna see that. Like, or I'll leave, I'll leave, and we'll be, Ashley will tell you, if we're in the middle of a really awkward thing, I'll get up and leave the room in the middle of the, uh, like, uh, you know, all of a sudden have to use the bathroom and the really worst part of the thing and get back for the good stuff. That's what Flannery O'Connor's talking about. Sentimentalism is trying to avoid the hard realities of life by just fast-forwarding as fast as you can through all that bad stuff to get to the good stuff. But the Psalms 
on the other hand, are brutally honest about how hard life can be. Listen, every one of us in the room is going through some hard stuff right now. No one is exempt. So hard that we are tempted to play a grown-up game of make-believe. The Psalms, however, help us to live in the real world, which is a good world, gone terribly wrong because of human rebellion against our maker. Sin has had many terrible effects. And to highlight just one, sin has introduced a complexity that can be incredibly disorienting and discouraging. And to meet it requires an emotional range like what you find here in the Psalms. We live in a cursed world, and the blame is ours. And despite our best efforts, we experience all the bad of those decisions, but also some of the good. Now, the world is being redeemed. Isn't that great news? That is the good news of the gospel. But let's don't get ahead of ourselves. The world is being redeemed, but not quite yet. And we can't rush ahead to the happy ever after and ignore the truth of our experience. We need a language to help us celebrate, but also lament. And sometimes at the same time, in the same prayer, in the same service, there are people weeping because of the sad things they're going through and others rejoicing because of the happy things that they're going through. And that's what the Psalms are so helpful in helping us do. Psalm 42 is brutally honest. Look at the way he describes life. You can see it all over the Psalm, but I would just point your attention to verse 7. He says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, what does that mean? I remember, I have a distinct memory of a trip to the beach when I was a child. I grew up here in Florida, Central Florida, and I, I liked going to the east coast of Florida much better as a, as, a, as a kid anyway than the west coast because of the waves. I thought the west coast was for old people. It was boring. And now as an old person, I realized just how terribly wrong I was. The west coast is the best. I say east coast of Florida is like burnout Aerosmith. West coast is like... Jimmy Buffett, and I'm, you know, more of a parrot head, I guess, at this point in my life. Who knows? But I remember one particular trip. I went out into the water, and the waves were bigger than usual, which, of course, was adventurous to me. And I was trying to get out beyond where the waves were breaking, you know, to, to, with a boogie board or whatever I had, and uh, so that you get out, and then you can catch the waves back in. But I got caught, and a wave rammed into me and took me under and flipped me around. And it was kind of one of those deals where, you know... It, it kind of, uh, you know, I kind of stayed under submerged for a while and I resurfaced just in time to get my head above water. And then, of course, what happened as soon as I got my head above water? The next wave. Whew, and I went back down. And I remember thinking, I literally remember thinking, this is it. I'm going to die right here, you know. And it happened a few more times. I would barely catch my breath and the next wave would come. And that, that's the image here, the psalmist says. And life, life can be that way sometimes, can't it? Can I get an amen? I mean, right? I mean, life can feel like that. But whatever the circumstances, there's a bigger picture that emerges in the Psalms that explains all of the particular hard things that might come our way or the, you know, the set of waves that might come our way. The Psalm uh, explains this. The author, it says, verse 6, if you look there, is writing from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Now, Mount Mizar is completely unknown to the scholars and to the commentators. We don't know where it is or was or even what the psalmist is talking about here, but we do know Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is beyond the Jordan River to the northeast. So it's way, you know, it's kind of the opposite direction from Jerusalem where the people of God would gather to worship God and so forth. So this author, as he's writing this, he's far away from home. 
He can't get to the temple to join the procession of worshipers converging on Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. That's verse 4. Do you see that? He's far away from all that is dear to him, far away from home, so far away from God. And that is the root of all that is hard about life. It is what our sin has done. We live east of Eden, far away from home. We were the man and the woman in Genesis. They were exiled from the garden. We are We are not in the home that God has made for us. We live far from that and far from God. And it's not easy being away from home. It's scary and disorienting and uncomfortable. John Steinbeck described the climb into the mountains of central California, his childhood home, as climbing into the lap of a beloved mother. My wife I think it's the same feeling crossing the bridge on 41 going over the Manatee River into Bradenton, her hometown. There's nothing like the feeling of going home. C.S. Lewis believed that we all experience what he called a lifelong nostalgia. He said it was a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be inside a door we've always been on the outside of, and it can have a crippling effect. It's the source of all of our loneliness, and we're in the middle of a loneliness epidemic. You know this, right? It is the leading, you know, health risk factor in our society. So much so, get this, that the Surgeon General of the United States recently came out and said you should go to church because people who go to church aren't as lonely as people who don't. It's the reason for our FOMO. For all, a lot of the crippling emotional problems that we deal with. And Psalm 42 is so helpful because it locates the true source of all the alienation and disorientation that we experience in life. And here's what it says. Our souls were made for God. That we yearn for the one who made us. Like a deer pants for water. Look at that verse one. We are thirsty for God. And that is not merely a description of a spiritually mature person. It is the description of the human condition. Every single person. Even if you're here and you don't believe We were made for him, and we thirst for him. And so we need to understand the root of all of our feelings and all of our behavior. Augustine famously prayed, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. G.K. Chesterton said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And yet we feel so far away from him, because this is what sin does. And the ripple effect goes out into all of the other parts of our lives. Listen to the, again to the psalmist's agony. Look at, just, let's just walk through this psalm for just a minute and see the agony. He says, verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Verse 3, where is your God? Verse 9, why have you forgotten me, God? Verse 10, he repeats, where is your God? These are the questions at the core of every human heart, the real struggle of life. God is our home, and we are far from God because of sin, and so we are far from home. And that is the reason that life feels the way that it does. And what's great about the Psalms is they they give us words to express the real situation of our lives. He is, the psalmist here is realistic about life. But secondly, Psalm 42 and the rest of the Psalms, it's also honest about feelings. If you've read the Psalms at all, you know that they're supercharged with emotions, and Psalm 42 is no exception. I mean, this guy, this guy is emotional. He's kind of losing it. It is the emotional plea of a desperate person. 
And that in itself is a challenge for many of us. The Psalms talk a lot about happiness and joy. That's fairly easy to handle. But they also talk a lot about despair and grief and anger. You know, major attitude towards God. And that is much harder because for some reason, we've got it in our heads that there is no place for those emotions in the spiritual life. I mean, what we say to people, whether we mean to or not, is if you're sad and you just can't get over with, can't get over it, I mean, you got to deal with that. But here's the thing the Psalms would say if you're sad and you just can't get over it, or if you're angry, so angry that you even feel angry at God, if you feel that way, what, what, what I think people hear a lot of times is, well, then you lack faith. So you never express those negative emotions. You suppress them and worship God instead. You just don't talk about your grief or your anger. And the problem is it feels so fake. It is fake because real life is hard and full of disappointment and loss. And so the Psalms invite us into something different. I remember when I, the moment when this first started to dawn on me. We were at, Ashley and I were attending a funeral of a girl who was in our youth group years ago. We were youth pastors, believe it or not, way, I mean, in the dark ages, the 1990s. Uh, that was supposed to be funny. It wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old, but it feels like it was. This, this girl who we loved dearly, she died. It was in her late 20s, I want to say, from cancer. She left behind two little girls, and we were just distraught. And uh, we went to the funeral at a church here in town, and uh, I remember going into the funeral and having a very different experience than what I expected. We were told, and this is not, I'm not exaggerating, we were told uh, from the front that we were not allowed to weep or be sad. That if we believed in God, then we had to be happy. Anything else was inappropriate. It was a lack of faith. God would not be pleased with it. That was said by the people leading the service. And so I'm a, I'm a spiritually immature person. I couldn't do it because I didn't feel like singing. I felt like crying. And, so, and I was told that that was wrong, so I left. Now, think about the range of emotions in the songs that we sing. It's pretty narrow. After doing this for 25 years, I can tell you, I listen to people all the time complain about the songs not being happy enough or fast enough or peppy, or not peppy enough. I've never in all of my years of pastoring in churches had someone tell me that the songs in church weren't sad enough. What I love about the Psalms, and Psalm 42 in particular, is the way that they model for us how we should be praying and singing to God. They are our hymn book, and they are full of people acknowledging their despondency and their frustration, and even calling God into question sometimes, which means expressing your emotions honestly, even the negative emotions. And here's what that means. If it's a model for us in the Psalms, then can I say this to you? Expressing your emotions honestly, even the negative emotions, is not a lack of faith. It is an act of faith. Okay? Because the psalmist describes his inner life here in verse 5 and then again in verse 11. Those are the really important verses. So look there. He says he's cast down and he's in turmoil. He actually, in a third, a third time in verse 6, he says he's cast down. And then in... in Psalm 40, 43, it ends with the same phrase. Why are you downcast on my soul and disquieted within me? But here are other translations. Cast down and in turmoil here in the ESV. Downcast and disquieted. Crushed and troubled. Despairing and disturbed in the NAS. The NIV is sad and upset. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, he said, down in the dumps and crying the blues. That has a sing-songy way about it, doesn't it? But here's what I want you to see, is that this 
person writing this song is modeling for us what it looks like to bring these feelings into our worship. He's bringing these emotions into his worship. He doesn't try to feel differently so that he can sing. He sings to feel differently. He sings because he doesn't feel the way he wants to. He doesn't feel the way he's supposed to, but he doesn't hide the way he feels. He knows he's free to just bring his real self to the real God so they can deal with one another. And it's not a lack of faith, to be so brutally honest. It's an act of faith. To think that you have to think and feel in the right way and not be real, that is the unbelief. God wants to reel you. We try to teach people to think this way about prayer. Bob Allen's will tell you as we do our praying life seminars. What we say to people is the key to a prayer life is not doing it right, it's being real. And so really the whole praying life seminar is just trying to, trying to convince people through the gospel lens that it's okay to just be real with God. Because when people learn that, if they can just be real and not worrying about being right, about doing it right, about whether you know, they're doing it the right way, then prayer becomes less, less difficult. Intimacy require, requires honesty. And intimacy with God is no different. God wants the real you, the real you and the real God meeting together to deal with one another in the Psalms show us the way. So this Psalm is realistic about life and then secondly it's honest about feelings but here's what I want you to see is that thirdly and lastly this psalm and the rest of the psalms they resolve by doing theology now the psalm is structured around the refrain in verse 5 as I said that repeats again in verse 11 and so they're basically two that's the chorus of the psalm so to speak you have the verse and then the chorus and then the verse and then the chorus and here's what it says he says why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now notice what's happening there. As we've already said, there's honesty. There's not fake spirituality. The psalmist doesn't deny his depression for the sake of having faith, but he doesn't dwell on it either. He, he acknowledges it, he names it, and then he immediately turns to God. In fact, it is not merely a description of the way he was feeling. It is an attack on those feelings with the truth about God. Look again. See what he's doing. He's calling into question his emotional state. He's not just naming it. He's going on the attack. He's saying, why are you like this? What's going on? You have no reason or right to feel this way. He's in touch with his feelings, but he doesn't allow himself to wallow in them. He goes on the attack. And the first part is important. To be given permission to name the way you feel, to be real, no matter what it might sound like, no matter how awful it might sound when it comes out of your mouth, but you do the first part so that you can do the second part. The first part's the starting place, but you don't end there. You do it so that you can get beyond your feelings to the truth, which is what he models so well here because he says, verse 42, listen, look at this phrase. This is, this is life, isn't it? He says, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me, where is your God? Do you hear that? Isn't, that? isn't that fascinating? He says he's crying. He can't stop crying. He's just laying around. He's depressed. He just he can't get over it. But notice what he says. He says his tears have a voice. That kind of depression, it has a voice. It starts to shout things like, man, you stink. You just, you can't hack it. This is all your fault. You might as well give up. You're all alone. You've blown it so bad, there's no coming back from this. God has abandoned you. His tears are talking to him. 
And he's overwhelmed with all of the voices that are screaming at him all these negative things. But then there comes a place where he decided to stop listening and start talking back. Look, he says, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? He turns on himself. He starts talking to himself. He refuses to allow himself to talk. He stops listening to his heart, starts talking to his heart. Spurgeon said it's as though there were two men. The psalmist talks to himself. His faith reasons with his fears. His hope argues against his sorrows. He's depressed, but he goes on the attack. He says, what's the deal? Why am I feeling this way? And then he's defiant. You see it? He's defiant. Verse 5, he says, yet I shall praise him. He's saying... I know how I feel, but I'm going to choose to act against my feelings. He rejoices in God, not because he feels like rejoicing in God. He rejoices because he isn't feeling the things that he should. He does it because he doesn't feel the way that he knows that he would like to or that he should. And so he does it to get himself to the place of feeling the way that he should be feeling. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he taught me this from this text. In the first chapter of his book called Spiritual Depression, which is just... I can't recommend it to you highly enough. He says this, and this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, Remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. He goes on, then you defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and defy the whole world and say with this man, yet I shall praise him. He says, the essence of this matter is to understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, he's got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him, condemn him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know instead of listening, listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. Now, I remember the moment and the place where I was sitting when I read that paragraph, and it changed my life. It's still changing my life. There's an unfortunate mistranslation in the ESV. I'm not sure why. Verse 5, it should be translated like this. Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him, the salvation of my face. You probably even have a footnote. If you look in your Bible, that's why it would be a good, good idea to have a Bible. If you have a Bible, there's probably a footnote there. And I understand the Hebrew is clunky, but that's important because here's what it means. What he's saying here is what you believe in your heart shows up in your face. If you're depressed and disquieted, people will see it in your face. But when you take yourself in hand and remind yourself of the truth about God, then as your heart gets better, your countenance gets better too. Theological reflection has a physical effect. Good theology shows up eventually in a person's countenance. Now, let me be careful. Let me be careful. Depression is a multifaceted problem. Our scope is very narrow, okay? That's what you have to understand. I'm a pastor, this is church. Theological reflection is often not enough. We are mind, body, and soul beings. Therapy is good and necessary. Medication is as well. But to merely address the physical without also addressing the spiritual dynamics is not enough either. The gospel is the power of God. 
And so he's modeling for us here how to deal with our own hearts with the truth. Well, of course, then we need to end our time together this morning by asking the question, well, what truth? And here's the unsatisfactory answer I'm going to give you this morning. Well, we're going to take the rest of the summer to answer that question. (laughs) So you need to come back. Don't miss church. But for now, let's just go back to the questions that keep popping up. Do you see in verse 3, verse 10, where is your God? What's God doing? Why has God, God has abandoned you? Where is God? Well, that is a very profound question that sits upon the heart, sits upon the soul quite often. And the Christian answers that question with a very clear answer. Where is your God? The Christian answer is this. God is with us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God incarnate. God dwelling among us. God come. Where is God? He's come. Jesus' life of obedience and death upon the cross has made it possible for us to be at home with God again. He can take away your sins. You can be forgiven. You can live eternal life with God, not in heaven someday when you're floating around on clouds half-dressed with a halo hanging over your head like in the Bugs Bunny cartoons, but now, right now, and when everything else is falling apart, his love remains true. And if your faith is in Jesus, there's nothing to condemn you. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. There's nothing that can threaten to undo all the good he has planned for you. Think of all those things in Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nothing can separate us from his love. Jonathan mentioned, uh, Tim Keller passed away this week. I've had a really hard time with it. His church, if you don't know who he is, he's he's a father of the faith for many of us in our denomination. He planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in 1989. We are Redeemer Winter Haven, because in many ways because of the influence that he's had on both Jonathan and I and a lot of the people who were in our core group. And so I've, I've, I've been really emotional all week long, but I came across an interview that Russell Moore had with, with Keller in 2020, so in the middle of COVID-19. So he was sequestered at home because, in New York City because of COVID-19. He had just received the pancreatic cancer diagnosis, which would eventually be the cause of his death three years later. So it was essentially a death sentence. And Russell Moore interviewed him, and he just asked him a question. He said, what would you say in light of all of this, just all of this, what would you say to a young Christian who's nervous about the future or who's full of anxiety? And this was Dr. Keller's answer. He said, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, then everything's going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about, Whatever you're afraid of, it's going to be okay. You might not know how, but it will be. And then he talked about just the days before when he had received the cancer diagnosis about crying with his wife over the cancer news. And this is what he said. I'll quote him. He said, we were overwhelmed by the shortness of the time we have left here. He says, but then you say, like, he, see, this is Psalm 42. He says, we're overwhelmed. We're crying. We can't stop crying. But then he says, but then you say, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it's going to be okay. And then you wipe away your tears. But you don't stop crying. He said it's like salt in the wound. It keeps the wound from getting infected. Until we actually meet Jesus, we still have our wounds. But one day, all of our wounds will be healed by his. And then he said, if Jesus Christ, he looked at the camera kind of, you know, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you're going to be okay. And here's the change that that can produce in a life. In verse 3, 
Look at verse 3. He says, he begins, so the psalm begins. At the beginning of the psalm, he says, my tears are my food day and night. He just can't get away from the grief. But then in verse 8, he goes back to that theme of day and night. But look how it's changed. In verse 3, it's his tears that are his food day and night. In verse 8, he says, it's the steadfast love of the Lord by day and his song by night. And so his tears are no longer fueling his life. He's still crying, but now God is the greater reality. God's steadfast love and his song are determining his emotional state. And that's the change. That's how you do the Godward life. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, which is the gold standard for many people, I think he sums it up well, how Psalm 42 is meant to leave us, especially verses 5 and verse 11. He uses the word self-communing, that we are to be self-communing. And he says this, he says, it is an important dialogue within the believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He's called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. In other words, emotionally shut down. He says, the psalmist's refrain, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. The psalmist's refrain teaches us how to take seriously both aspects of our existence. There is no hint that his distress was unavoidable on the one hand, for it arose out of his love, or unendurable on the other, for it did not shake his face. faith. In other words, there is no avoiding the crisis. This is where we live. Experiencing all of the grief and the anger of life in a fallen world, yet stayed on God. And so we have no choice. We have to learn the lesson of the Psalms. We have to learn this skill how to have courage to be real and to be honest and yet keep expressing faith, to allow ourselves to feel all of the things, the worry and the fear and the grief and the disappointment and the anger, but then in the middle of feeling them, defiantly turn away from ourselves and turn towards God and rejoice in who he is. So that what we know to be true of God begins ultimately to determine how we feel and not the other way around. That is, that is the Godward life. It's what the hymn writer in this well-known hymn says as well he, when he says, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, would you come now, even as we sing this song that echoes the very psalm we just sang, as it reflects on that phrase, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. As we sing this, would you, would you take us to places of new honesty before you, that we would put away all pretense and believe that you can handle the real us, whatever that might be, whatever that might look like, that we would come before you with how we feel and all the complexity of the lives that we're living. And yet, in the middle of expressing our hearts to you, that we would find faith rising, that we would not just say the first part of that phrase, but only get to the second, put your hope in God, and that we would talk to ourselves that the rising voices of each of us in the room this morning would be an aid and encouragement to our faith, to turn our hearts and our affections, to turn our eyes to you this morning, that we might learn to live by faith and not by sight. 
so that we uh, might live in the legacy of the psalm writers who live in all of the weirdness and the complexity and the brutality of this life in a fallen world, yet not without hope. We need you to do this work in us, so Spirit, come and do it. And start even now as we sing together here at the end of our service, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, no matter what you came from or what you're going into this week, he is worthy of our praise. Uh, but the key is to know uh, that there is new mercy every morning, and when, and to tr- that, that line in that song, to trust in his goodness where I cannot see. You know how you do that? You look upon the light of the face, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, knowing that the one who died for you, who has redeemed you, has won the heart of the Father for you for all time, that you go now with the blessing and the promise of the Father that's in this benediction. This is how you know. This is how you trust him when in the places where you can't see. You trust his goodness because this is the promise that he makes to you. Listen to these words as he sends us now into the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.